0: The BBC Spectrum. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro.
1: High-resolution, color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution of technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Windows XP turns 20. The BBC Spectrum.
0: A phantom goes to auction. And let's get procedural with Rogue 64. All this, plus our Community Question of the Week, On This Week in Retro, up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. John, before we go into our first story, I'm I'm just going to share with you my elation that just 30 seconds or so before we started recording, uh, the electrician left... Uh, with his bags, and it was the very last piece of the puzzle in finishing the cave. So it is now
1: officially finished, ready for... Congratulations, Neil. I know it's been a long road.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I had to uh, almost stop myself there. It'll never be finished, but it's officially ready for the public to come and visit. That's uh, fantastic.
1: So have you set the date for your first, sort of, your grand opening? No
0: date yet. Um, uh, In about two weeks' time, we'll have a soft launch, so like a friends and family launch. Uh, make sure nobody trips over anything or kills themselves or anything like that because you know you can test that kind of thing out on your family and then we'll set Mm -hmm. a date for opening it up to the public but uh i'm just working on editing up the big reveal video and then everyone can see what we've done here so i'm very excited that's fantastic keep us updated for sure i will i will so into our first story can you believe it john windows xp has turned 20 years old does that make you feel old (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) yes <laughs> <laughs> yes that's the only answer for it is it yes and it does me too it turned 20 on the 25th of october appearing way back in 2001 originally xp was the convergence of the of the two channels of microsoft's operating system so you had the 9x side windows 95 windows 98 me and all of that um and then you know it was getting seriously creaky by 2001 um the, the the blue screen of death on the Windows ME, especially, was getting beyond a joke, and we were all getting a bit fed up of it at home. And then Microsoft, on the other side, had the Windows NT side of things. Now, Windows NT, an operating system which dates back to 1993, and that was seen as a far more serious uh, and mature operating system, really, to serve businesses. And the big advantage of NT was that it was supposed to be a multi-user, multi-processor, uh, OS from the, from the get go, um, it was really trying, Windows trying to play catch up with with Unix, which had been designed way way back to be a multi-user, you know, multi-process um, OS, and uh, it, it adapted well Windows NT to also to different CPU architectures. Yeah, I mentioned before on the show how I used Windows NT on, on digital, on deck machines back in the 90s. Mm. And, and it adapted so well to all of those different CPUs. And you couldn't have done that on 9X. Now, Windows 9X, in comparison, it was a far less secure operating system, typically used by one user and lacking things that NT introduced, such as the NTFS file system, which well, that's getting pretty long in the tooth now. We're still using that in our, our current iterations mm-hmm. of Windows. But uh, that did allow you to secure files and folders in a shared environment a little bit better. Now, with the release of Windows XP 20 years ago, that 9x thread was put on the chopping block uh, and MS would move forward with uh, one single operating system, albeit with various additions crippled in varying ways to, to leverage license fees in, in, in the way that Microsoft loved to do. So, John, let's just talk about your memories of XP. Were you an early adopter? Did you rush out and buy it to to all the hype and fanfare?
1: Uh, No. No, In fact, I, I was not an early adopter of XP at all. I was pretty much all Mac all the time from around 2000 up until 2013 or so. Um, in fact, I actually used XP and its multitude of confusing editions at different price points, security problems, general cruft, uh, to sell people on Macs. <laughs> I worked at <laughs> Apple Retail uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, and people snapped them up in droves. Uh, in fact, I think that XP's various vulnerabilities and incessant patches, not to mention all the different confusing editions, uh, did more to sell people on Macs than anything Apple was actually putting on their computers back then.
0: Yeah, uh, Windows XP had such a long lifespan that there was a a very... I I can see how you would have used it as a sales tool, especially later in life, when uh, OS X on the Mac really, really did accelerate and and, um, look to be streets ahead, didn't it? Um, The arrival of XP here in the UK specifically, it roughly coincided with the availability of ADSL broadband. So we were starting to Mm. get, uh, to begin with, it was 512k ADSL connections up and running. And it suddenly meant that not only did we have fast connections, but we were always connected or at least most of us were, as as in when we got ADSL. And at first, XP, it did seem like a marked improvement over 98. Um, I never moved to ME, so it was a jump from 98 second edition I would have had into XP at home. Um, and it, it, it included things like DirectX, so you could play your games on it, whereas... There were Windows 2000, which came before it on the NT side. Uh, You could play some games on it, but there were certain compatibility problems, and that just tied everything up nicely to make it better for use in the home. But as slick and shiny as the new XP was, uh, once we got out, once we all got ADSL in the homes, and that became the norm and we were always on, XP really did cause some major headaches. Uh, And there was a point where I personally thought The XP might even be the downfall of Microsoft. It got that bad. And um, Mm -hmm. I'll explain why, because uh, despite having lots of whizzy features with XP, security features, supposedly, um, when you combined XP with the always-on connectivity of ADSL and the way that some companies were providing ADSL to us here. So for example, in the UK, we had ADSL routers, but some companies were so cheap, they were giving they were putting out ADSL modems, which meant there was no uh, firewall built in. There, there was no hardware security whatsoever. All of that. It was just an open door and everything fell onto the operating system to keep you secure. And it was just an open invitation. You know, these really, really insecure connections and hackers were able to attack pretty much every security floor going... In XP, And there were plenty of them. And we'd been conditioned with 98. Um, we, we didn't necessarily rush out to get updates and service packs and things like that, because the door was closed, because there was no open door to the internet, there was no threat. There were viruses and things like that, of course, but we had our virus checkers to keep an eye on that. And it, it wasn't such a big deal. But suddenly, we were in danger. And x p
1: <laughs> suddenly it was a big deal suddenly
0: it was a big deal yeah <laughs> um and uh, some some attacks uh, to note include we had the blaster worm in two thousand and three that was able to exploit every single installation of x p that hadn't been patched. Mm. <laughs> There was the Sasser worm in 2004, and then there were all of the uh, email attachment attack uh, attacks because um, I think you had Outlook built in to Windows XP, so everyone was using that for their email, uh, and things like MyDoom and Netsky and things like that. It, it was just an open door yeah. job.
1: Yeah, I remember coming home from you know my first real job after college, away from home, coming home to my parents' house, and that oh three oh four time frame and uh, our family pc in the living room uh neil i think it was infected with everything in the universe <laughs> it, it it had worms it had viruses it had zombies i think we ended up just burying the whole thing in the backyard it was, it was that far gone <laughs> Uh, I'm not surprised.
0: I saw so many instances of that. Um, yeah, I saw awful, awful lot of machines being infected through backdoors, through dodgy email attachments, through malicious websites and and downloads, but sometimes you didn't even have to download anything. You know, they would be injected through adverts and things like that. And XP just wasn't fit for the Wild West that was the internet. And there well, it was, as I said, a period where I felt like MS was not going to be able to make that OS secure enough, and that would be the end of Windows. But what really saved Microsoft in my eyes was Service Pack 2 for Windows XP. Um, it really was a saving grace. And and it did transform the operating system into not a perfect operating system. There'll be plenty of Linux users out there listening, screaming at us, going, Why, why did you stick to, to Windows? You could have just used Linux. But Service Pack 2 did really save the day for XP. Um it added things like uh, attachment execution service, which would fight back against email hacks and and just stop you from opening them if they were from an untrusted source. Um, And it did simple but really quite obvious things. So, for example, XP had a software firewall. It wasn't enabled by default until Service Back 2. That thing was just switched off. Um, so, service so yeah. Pack to switch
1: that on. Uh, I, I think that this harkens back to, you know, Microsoft's sort of uh, playing both sides of the road when it came to the Internet and the future of computers. Uh, you know, as, as, in the, as, as we all know, Bill Gates famously uh, was not all in on the Internet from the beginning. And it, it took him a few years to come around to say, hey, maybe this thing is going to take off. And, and that might have had something to do with it.
0: True, true, but that did go all the way back to Windows ninety five. Um, was it ninety five or ninety eight when you installed it, and you had things like the Microsoft Network on your desktop? Was an iPod? I think that was ninety eight. Ninety eight. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know they were well aware, um, although that was back in the dial up days. But they Microsoft must have known the, the way we were going and the it, always so. on nature yeah. of, of how it was going to become. But yeah, you, you could argue that we could have used our own firewalls and our own antivirus and all of that stuff should have been tighter, but you know, maybe, maybe more could have been done. But home users certainly shouldn't have been expected to know any of that. It should just be seamless and oblivious. The, the job of the operating system is to protect the user from the complexities of the machine. So they shouldn't be expected to know all of this stuff. It should have been safe out of the box. So what I remember about XP personally was the potential downfall of MS's dominance. The, the horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach when I came into work as to what tickets would be waiting for me, all the infected machines, all of the infected email attachments that had been opened. and, and so, so yeah, I call that job security. You should at have it been that way. for joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bring back yeah, unstable
1: yeah. operating systems. I'll be in a job for life. Right. (laughs) You know, something I remember XP for is that it just didn't ever die. I mean, XP was around forever, wasn't it? Yep. Even when you buried that machine in your back garden, that zombie was trying
0: to (laughs) claw its way out. Um, uh, Microsoft really did seem to struggle to move on from XP. Um, Windows Vista was the successor. That came out in January of 2008, making it the longest span between OS uh, from Microsoft b- between releases um, and of course Vista had its own set of development release problems but that's a whole different story we can't go into today
1: yeah yeah i you know i think xp stuck around for a long time because people developed editions that were very light you know you could install it off a single a cd and um, and it would run, you know, it had so much backwards compatibility built in that as long as you didn't need to connect it to the internet and expose yourself to all the security risks, you could run it. You can still run it, you know, with, with little to no problems. Uh, I ran XP on my main computer until just a few years back when I upgraded my machine. And last week we talked about... Maybe it was last week, a couple weeks ago, we talked about netbooks and the rise of the netbook. And, of course, the first thing that I did was uh, take Windows Vista off and install XP when I bought one of those uh, netbooks. And that that really made a a difference in the speed of the machine. But these days, you know, you can buy Windows 10 keys on eBay for just a couple bucks. So there's no reason for me to want to go back. legitimate windows 10 keys on ebay john <laughs> i'm sure they're 100 percent legitimate
0: they sure. haven't failed me yet <laughs> i'm pretty sure you can install windows 10 and even 11 using a windows 7 key still you know microsoft mm. are uh, quite relaxed about it but i think that's yeah. all part and parcel of how they infiltrate the, the, and, and dominate the the desktop the market. way they're making money is different now yeah for true sure. true yeah so I think what we're seeing today in the in the update cycle of Windows is a determined effort never to fall into that the same traps again as they did with XP and try to con- constantly freshen up and improve the OS because five years is a lifetime in technology. Thinking back, it felt like way longer than five years that XP was about, um, probably just because when Vista hit, it was horrible. So so people didn't migrate mm-hmm. that quickly. So XP did hang around a lot longer and we got Service Pack 3 and all that stuff. So um, yeah, it's good now that Windows moves a little bit more with the times, but it does also come with the unnecessary tinkering to th- certain things to get um, the impression of improvement where it might not necessarily be there. It almost feels like sometimes Microsoft need to, to tell us they're doing something um, when it's not really necessary. But to XP, there are things we can thank it for. Um, the, the, the Teletubby Hills wallpaper, the uh, the control panel that seemed to work pretty well and uh, have everything in one place. I still have problems finding settings in Windows 10 and that kind of disjointed settings and control panel. Um, look, I haven't tried Windows 11 yet, so I can't tell if that's got any better yet or not. But um, it also came with Internet Explorer 6 which was okay at the time, but it also hung around for too long. A game with Outlook Express, it guided many of us into the broadband era, and it did eventually find its sweet spot before outstaying its welcome. So, happy birthday to Windows XP. Everybody's got a favorite specky, right, Neil? Well, yeah, my favourite Spectrum was the one that's over on the desk there until yesterday when I turned it on and it displayed symptoms of RAM problems. So um, Mm -hmm. I haven't got a good relationship with my Spectrum right now. (laughs) And I'm not entirely convinced that people on your side of the pond would
1: necessarily have a favourite Spectrum. Am I right? (laughs) <laughs> well, you you might be right, Neil. Maybe not everybody, but surely almost everybody that grew up with a fascination with computers in the UK in the 1980s either had or had contact with someone with one of the wide range of ZX Spectrum computers. Uh, I've always been a fan of the 48K dead flesh model, but the plus two Allen Sugar special with the built-in tape drive runs a close second.
0: Hmm, would that be the black plus two A or the
1: earlier plus two The gray one, John. Do you have a preference? I've got the gray one. Yeah, I've got the gray one. Uh, It was gifted to uh, Aaron and I by an Our Sinclair fan. Uh, You definitely don't find Spectrums just, you know, mounting up at flea markets in West Virginia. (laughs) It's it's a rare sight here. Um, And, you know, it's such a handsome machine. I just love the way it looks. The only problem with it is the joystick port. Uh, as you probably know, even though it may look like it can use your standard C64 or Atari joystick, the uh, DB9 port only works with Sinclair sticks. I mean, what a missed opportunity to give the uh, the user the entire range of sticks rather than just the, uh, you know, the Allen sugar greed factor making those ports for the brand's own controllers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but
0: aside from that, though... You do have to remember the original Spectrum didn't come with joystick ports, so you had to slot in the, right. the interface. And then I guess you this thing had to... Thing maintain backwards
1: compatibility with all the existing software so it would have been a tough call to change that but yeah yeah i agree but even when you plugged in the interface the interface was for 2600 you know atari style sticks well you had a sinclair interface and you had a kempston
0: interface and you had all different yeah. ones so yeah it was it was and most games supported all of those interfaces
1: so mm-hmm. yeah yeah they could have done it but i understand the need to uh, to want to sell your own stuff and and you do have a point about you know some possible compatibility issues but anyway that's that's really the only thing that stands in its way of it really being a perfect spectrum as far as i can tell but as we've discussed on previous episodes there's a movement among some retro computing enthusiasts to build new versions of these classic computers as an exercise in what if So, uh, for example, last week we talked about the Mega 65, I guess that was a couple weeks ago, which is a modern reimagining of what the C64 could have been in a future unreleased iteration. Uh, This next story is quite similar to that. Uh, YouTubers 10P6 have imagined an alternate timeline where Sinclair, rather than Acorn, won the contract to put computers in schools across England, and they've taken a stab at what that computer might have looked like. Now, before we talk about their vision, I'd like to put the same question to you, Neil. Uh, In your mind, if Sir Clive had won the deal, what would the BBC Spectrum have looked like? Do you think we would have just gotten the Dead Flesh special, or would there have been some changes made?
0: Mm, It's a really interesting question. Um, And I remember when I was researching the whole um, computer literacy project, uh, and the machines that had been submitted for consideration, uh, a lot of it was just machines submitted on on paper, their technical specs. You didn't actually get to see the, the final look of these machines. So um, we didn't really get that much to compare. There were some machines. Um, I think the Spectrum was put forward as an option, um, and there were some others. But on the whole, you didn't get to see what they were going to look like. And I think the main difference between the Spectrum as we knew it and a Spectrum that was picked for the school would have been really a physical one more than anything else. I think Acon really nailed the look and the heft and the weight and the durability of the BBC micro for a a school Mm -hmm. environment. And, um, as resilient as the little specky was on our bedroom floors, there was just too much scope for them to be slapped quite literally slapped off of the table or for wires to be yanked out if rows of them were sat on school desks. So I, I think it was too fragile. um, I think we'd have seen something more like the Plus Two, like your beloved Grey Plus Two, with a more suitable keyboard, or even companies like DK Tronics did those aftermarket cases for the the specy with actual keyboards. That would have been much better suited to it to a school environment, I think. Internally, I think it would have been fine. You know, it was used to teach us basic programming and run educational titles, which the Spectrum was absolutely capable of. No problems on that front. So I do think the biggest difference would have been the physical look of the machine.
1: Well, let's talk a bit about what TIDP6 have reimagined here. So obviously, with government money, uh, the engineers at Sinclair could have reduced some of the cost-cutting measures that were in place and created a more expandable machine that would be built, as you said, to withstand the rigors and the slaps of the classroom. Uh, It's important to remember, too, that the contract was awarded in 1983, so the existing spectrum would have been out for a year already, so they'd be building on a design that was already on the market. So what did the folks at 10P6 change? Well... Instead of the all-in-one design, uh, they've replaced it with a pizza box style design uh, that a monitor can sit on top of, sort of like an Amiga 1000 type deal. Uh, but don't worry, uh, the rubber keys are still there. Uh, they're just on a detachable keyboard. Uh, this model would also come with the AY sound chip as standard, which is great, Would have options for upgrading the RAM from 16 all the way up to 128K. Uh, the interface one, which as you might recall, it was the peripheral that allowed the Spectrum to have network capabilities uh, as well as connect to the micro drive. That would also be integrated into the motherboard, uh, which technically would have been possible in 1983. And speaking of a micro drive, either one or two micro drives would be included as well. So a Spectrum with a micro drive in 1983, Neil, can you imagine it?
0: Yeah, interesting, interesting. I mean, the, the fact that network capabilities are mentioned would be a direct response to the Econet, which was part of the BBC Micro, and that allowed mm. teachers to kind of squirt the program down to ten computers at once, so they all loaded up for the kids. Uh, mm-hmm. I never got to experience that back in the day because I was in a small school, as many many of us would have been over here with just one BBC Micro in the corner. So it, it wasn't a big deal that we didn't have that Microdrive. Well. Let's just assume that their reliability problems have been overcome for the purpose of this exercise. You know, this is going to be a reimagined history. Tapes are a no-no because teachers can't be waiting for software to load up. You could prepare before the lesson, load them up, but it only takes one kid to reset the computer and then you've got another 10, 15 minutes of loading again. So tapes are out the window. Sinclair, we're trying to avoid floppy disks to keep the costs down. So micro drives if they worked as they were intended to if they didn't have those reliability problems then sure that that's a viable option um, and they were microdrives were released in 1983 so you know historically that that would have been an option too
1: yeah yeah now it would be one thing if this was just all ideas and renders but 10p6 has gone and done it uh, they've built the spectrum that might have been and christened it The Spectrum OPC, as a nod to the One Per Child initiative. So I've got to say it looks really amazing. Uh, I love the two-piece design, the compact nature of it. Um, Even though it's expanded, the case is still very small compared to something like the Apple II. Uh, What do you make of it, Neil? Well,
0: first of all, well done on actually creating this thing you know they've gone from 3d renders to actually building the thing and it looks wonderful so well done to, to the guys that have done this um let's think about this being in a school in 1983 because that's the purpose of the exercise here the idea of separating the keyboard from the computer that's a good one although it does introduce another wire for a kid to yank out but hey we have the same thing on the acorn archimedes so i can't really gripe at that um you do have to remember that that small hands will prod and poke anything any wire any button anything that they can get to the bbc micro pretty much had everything covered because it had all of the wires at the back and generally you put like a metal monitor stand over it which covered up the wires even more and you pop the the monitor usually a cub monitor on top there um and even that monitor had zero controls on the front. Uh, they did make the mistake of putting a couple of dials on the back of the screen so kids would reach around and, and turn the brightness up and down and mess with it um, because our hands are like, kid hands are like guided missiles to anything that they can break. So we, yeah, we will- it, it will was do. amazing to
1: me. I remember watching your video on the the BBC Micro and uh, talking about how the, even the volume controls were actually you'd have to take the case off just to get to that. And it was a pot. I think you had to turn it with a screwdriver or something like yeah. that to turn the volume up and down. Exactly that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And people like to modify it in the modern day so that they can actually get to the volume. In fact, that's an old fashioned mod as well. They used to do it back in the day, but but not in schools so much. Um, now, what there is on the front of this reimagined spectrum is a power switch, which I think is a big Big no-no that's fine at home but in schools you just know it's going to be flicked on and off so um put the switch on the back that's the one thing i'd change rubber keys mm-hmm. has to have a proper keyboard for me i get that what they're doing here by keeping the original style because keeping the rubber keys it gives it that romantic aesthetic that keeps it identifiable you look at this even though you've never seen it before you know it's a zx spectrum because of that keyboard um but you know, it failed to become the de facto computer for schools for a reason and we can't repeat the same mistakes. So I want a full, chunky, clacky keyboard. I think that is definitely needed. Um, I do have a like the move away from the all-in-one or the wedge design. Uh, You know, you could even wall mount this thing on the classroom um, if you've got limited space. Uh, You could have the keyboard and the screen on the desk or you can put, I I think it says it's designed to have a monitor on top, but I'm assuming that means a modern LCD because it doesn't look like a very big case. It looks like it might get crushed if you put a CRT on it, John.
1: Yeah, I guess maybe if you put the uh, uh, some RF shielding or some some sort of metallic <laughs> structure underneath the plastic case, it could support the full weight of a CRT. Uh, but you're right; it doesn't look it doesn't look uh, structurally sound enough to, for you to put one on there for a long time. Yeah,
0: yeah. So maybe I'm coming at this from the wrong angle. I'm I'm considering this whole project in 1983. Maybe there. They're reimagining a a, a different future where we're still using 8-bit micros in 2021, but we've upgraded our monitors to flat screens. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. (laughs) What a strange alternate timeline that would be. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But um, would this design have been picked over the Acorn offering in 1983? I think it would have come a lot, lot closer to being picked. You know, definitely would have got down to the final two, I think. Um, But ultimately, I think the BBC Micro would have still won out.
1: Yeah, I, I think you might be right, Neil. It's it's really hard to say at this point, of course, 40 years on, but it's always fun to think about questions like this, the big what-ifs in British computing history. So if you'd like to check out this for yourself or even build one, 10P6 has included a parts list and will be offering the STL files for 3D printing soon on his Facebook page.
0: It's your favorite time of the week, John. It's time for Auction, auction watch. watch. Um Auction Watch. Yeah. This <laughs> <laughs> Add some echo to that, Duncan. Auction watch. <laughs>
1: um
0: it, it's not a Nintendo cartridge this time. Um, it's not the IP for Chucky e. Egg, which we discussed in a recent show. Uh, speaking of which, we should we should check what that ended up at, because I know it was due to end that auction at the end of October. I've got it here on the screen. Um the bidding is still at twelve thousand five hundred dollars, which it was before. Uh, they, they've... Not exactly fast and furious bidding for the Chucky e. Egg IP. No, but they, they seem to have tagged another 30 days onto the auction. <laughs> so oh. it was supposed to have ended by now. Um, uh, and now they're ending it on the 4th of December. So uh, that's not how auctions work. You don't just roll the auction over because you're not happy with the, the price it's at. <laughs> you do when you want more money, Neil. <laughs> you do when you want more money. Right. We'll have to check back again on that another time. Um, No, anyway, this week it's time for uh, an auction for a system that never actually made it to market. So a prototype. Nothing unusual about that. These these are sometimes the most collectible and desirable items going. Um, Just this week, in fact, there was a prototype Amstrad CPC 464, which had a grey instead of a black top and it had a, a two layer not a two layer, a double stacked, So two PCBs inside it, which which confirmed that it was a prototype system. And I think Roland Perry, the designer, confirmed it on Facebook as well. So people went crazy for this. I think it went for over £2,000 in the end. Um, Very nice item. So that just goes to show how desirable prototypes can be. But this particular auction is for a games console from the mid-2000s named The Phantom. Some may remember the hype around this. Um, If not, let me jog your memory, John. In fact, before I do, do do you remember this, John?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I I totally remember the the Phantom. So tell if if, tell tell our listeners.
0: Sure, okay. So the Phantom was the creation of Tim Roberts and his company Phantom Entertainment, established in two thousand and two. Perhaps they did it on Windows XP. I don't know, but they they would announce the product by saying, "The Phantom is a revolutionary new gaming platform with an on-demand video game service." delivering games through an online subscription. Sounds pretty tame in 2021, but in 2002, 2003, that was just crazy talk, John. Um, (laughs) It was pretty much immediately dismissed as marketing hype that would never catch on. Can you imagine it? An online game subscription. Well, uh, the press release came and went. The deadlines were missed. Uh, A price of under $399 was given. Then more deadlines were missed. The Xbox 360 came out, still no sign of the Phantom, and ultimately it fulfilled its prophecy of being vaporware. Until now. <laughs> Until now. <Right? laughs> in a way, in a way. I mean, there, there have been prototypes of the Phantom in the past that have come to light. Uh, most notably, there was a unit that was publicly destroyed at QuakeCon back in 2004. <laughs> yes. Something to do with an ongoing legal dispute, and... Um, Someone got really, really angry, and there was a show of rage against the prototype, and it was just smashed up. I think you can still find the video online of this happening. Wow. Um, and now this one's come up. And um, last time I checked, it was at $3,200. US um, Let's have another little check live now while we're recording, if I can get this link to open. Here we go um oh right this auction has ended so they know how auctions work they don't just roll it over for another month on this one <laughs> um sold on october the 29th have we got a final price on there i'm not seeing a price
1: well this is you know this is heritage auctions this is the same auction site that sells all the dodgy uh um Uh, WADA, video game, auction stuff. So you never know. You never know. Uh, Okay. Oh, actually, I guess you've got to sign in before you can see the final price. That's what it is. Um, Yep. Okay. Duncan's going to find out what the final price is and flash it up
0: on the screen now, which doesn't help (laughs) if you're listening to the audio version. But we can assume it was at or above the $3,200 when I last checked. Yeah. So, uh, John, you've mentioned that you remember this. Just tell us a bit more about your memories of the Phantom
1: Well, you know, for years and years, the Internet public, at least, was clamoring for some kind of PC console hybrid, something that had all the power of a gaming PC, but you could plug into your TV and not be one of those. I plug my PC into my TV. Tight nerds, because we all know those people, Neil. I'm one of those people, Neil. Uh, Do you remember uh, Phantom's other product, Neil? Uh, This is the the Phantom Lapboard? No, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) With a name like Lapboard. It's got to be good. This was the thing that allowed you to achieve maximum laziness. Uh, You chill on your couch and you've got this board that lays over your prone body that allows you to use a keyboard and mouse while you're kicking back chillin'. Uh, this is actually something that did come to market, and I think they sold a, a fair few of them. Uh, I just checked on Amazon; there, the product page is still there, but it looks like they're no longer available. So, unfortunately, the Phantom appears to be a phantom once again.
0: I will be disappointed if the lapboard, if the underside isn't cloth and beanbag filling, so you put absolutely.
1: On your <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> I hope it was. I hope it was. Um... Really, I think the ultimate dream would be to lay down upon a beanbag and. And sort of create a beanbag sandwich with you in the middle oh, and the lapboard yes. on top. Oh, yes. Get the Phantom. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, we
0: can but dream, John, because I don't think either of us are going to be able to afford anything from Phantom in the near no. future. Uh, give it 10 years and those lapboards will be highly collectible retro items, I'm sure. I'm sure. But um, as for the Phantom, presumably none of the services that you could run on this console uh, ever made it online because it never made it to sale. So... Um, you know, even if they did, they'd be long gone. So the machine would be little more than a doorstop. Uh, that's likely something we'll, we'll get used to with future retro and the dependence on online services. So, in a way, the, the pioneer is the Phantom is a pioneer, uh, <laughs> a pioneer <True. laughs> in unusable collectible retro. So, I'm um, good luck to whoever's bought it and. I guess the best we can hope is that it goes on display in a museum or something like that where people can see it. You're not going to do a lot more with it. Um, or maybe we'll get a YouTube teardown video. That would be quite interesting. But um, how about you, the listeners? Do any of you remember this thing? Did you get excited for it? Did you join the pile on of hate for it? Um, I Did it get to the point where you could put down a deposit and possibly buy one? Did any of you do that? We'd love to hear your comments. Uh, head over to our subreddit. All of the links are in the show notes and let us know.
1: Neil, our next story this week is about a roguelike game. Why do you think games like Rogue continue to be so popular?
0: I think rogue games are really good games to escape into, John, uh, in a true kind of Dungeons & Dragons fantasy way. You, you can jump in, you've got a nice, clearly defined quest to complete. Uh, you can don your virtual wizard's hat or loincloth and go dungeon crawling. I use both. Both at the same time, if you want, your wizard's loincloth. Yeah. That's uh, that's my LARP get up. <laughs> you can kill some orcs, you can grind some stats, uh, and I think it's a pretty timeless
1: concept, really. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that genres that strip the mechanics down to the basics hold a certain appeal. To to some gamers. Um, You know, oftentimes roguelike games aren't the prettiest things to look at. Uh, They don't have an enthralling backstory or lots of cutscenes. They don't really have much to write home at all about in the music and sound effects department. But the underlying premise of, you know, you're playing a different game each time, it captivates people. Uh, I know it does me. I'm a huge fan of roguelike games. Uh, One of my favorites being a game called Brogue, which uses the familiar ASCII characters but plays with uh, the shading of the characters as lighting in in fonts and color changes that's entirely original and creative. Uh, Do you have a favorite roguish game, Neil? Well, I do have a cat to
0: throw amongst the pigeons here, John, in a moment. But did you say that game is called Brogue, as in the shoe?
1: Brogue, like a a Scottish brogue. (laughs) Okay,
0: It's a good name. It's a good name. Um, So here's something to twist things up a bit. Did you know that Toe Jam & Earl is considered by some to be a roguelike game? really <laughs> yes. no i was not aware of that yeah i was surprised too and, and i should probably define what a roguelike game is so uh, i've looked up generally what people consider it to be um it's that you could that you play as a single character you get random dungeons so procedurally generated maps you can suffer permanent death although in some games you might be able to disable this and it's usually turn-based does that all yeah, sound about I'd right?
1: agree. W- I'd agree with all of that.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So I wouldn't say that Toe, Jam & Earl really satisfies all of those. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm certainly not as big into the genre as you appear to be. Mm. Um, I'd sooner pick up a, a full-on RPG game than a roguelike game these days. So it's difficult for me to really pick out one and say that I, I've invested a lot of time into one. Um, but I'm here to be persuaded otherwise. So what have you got for us today, John?
1: Well, uh, it might be time to make room at the top for a new Rogue champion, Neil. Uh, Rogue 64 is a game from the delightfully named Badger Punch Games, Uh, and it's based on Rogue 4K, which is a minimalist roguish game they did. Uh, It's under 4,000 bytes, pretty small, uh, they made for the C64 cassette Fifty charity competition which was hosted by bitmap soft publishers of tons of new retro games so if you've ever played rogue or any of its successors you will recognize what to do right away uh, there's a magical object at the bottom of a dark dungeon and it's your job to travel down to go through the depths floor by floor collecting items using magical scrolls and defeating all kinds of baddies along the way
0: sounds quite roguish john um, it also sounds like well, the original game and pretty much every other roguelike game that I've ever heard of. So why would I choose this one over any of the existing games?
1: Well, they've added several quality of life improvements. Uh, You've got an on-screen map, which I love, uh, so you can put away the grid paper, as well as an inventory screen that's also on-screen all the time, so you can keep track of all the objects, cursed or otherwise, you've collected. Uh, The game graphically is also a step up from the original Rogue, it replaces the ASCII graphics for sprites, though they have kept the sprites simple and one color, which I think is part of that rogue like charm. Um, Neil, have you had a chance to look at Rogue 64? I what have. Do, what do you think?
0: On your recommendation, I took a look at it the other day, and you're right. It's got a very distinctive Commodore 64 charm to it. It really does bring that yeah. to the table. It, it combines as you say, the ASCII Origins, but but using sprites, but there's still a nod to those ASCII Origins. It's got some lovely C64 art and music. It's got the addition of that auto-mapping function. Um, uh, it looks like quite a quick game to play. I know these things are turn-based, but those turns come around pretty quickly. Um this this does uh, satisfy that part of Rogue, doesn't it? That it, it is turn-based. I, cu- I couldn't tell it was mm-hmm. moving so Absolutely. fast when I watched it. Okay. Um, so don't let that put you off, even though it's turn-based. It is quite a quick game. Uh, and the, the auto-mapping. Now, I don't know what the hardcore Rogue fans think about this, because some might think, you, you said put away the graph paper, but some might think that that's an important aspect of playing the game.
1: Yeah, you run into this too with people that are fans of dungeon crawlers, um, you know, on the 16, well, I guess also on the 8-bit machines, the 8 and 16-bit computers, they say that, you know, part of the fun of one of these games is having your notebook open beside you, you know, making notes of things, scratching things down, making that map, and then keeping that as an artifact of your time with the game, and I can certainly understand that, but in my, you know, older years, as my time is more limited, I find auto-mapping features just be an absolute godsend because it saves you so much time and it allows you to enjoy the game without making that kind of time.
0: Commitment. Yeah. Also, you've got to consider the way we play these games now um, through emulators or however else we're playing it. Um, you know, many of us won't be sat at the real hardware. Many of us might be playing it through a tablet sat on a sofa without, right. without even a desk to write with. So actually, it really does help in the modern day to do that. And for someone like me that's not so into rogue games, it makes the whole thing more accessible for me.
1: So hopefully it'll bring new people to the genre. But overall, yeah, it does look very good, John. So it is a Rogue game, as you mentioned. So if you're looking for real-time combat, uh, you're going to be disappointed. This is a game that (laughs) you physically run your sprite into an enemy until it dies. It's one of those sorts (laughs) of affairs in in the grand tradition of games like Rogue. But the animations are charming. Uh, There's a button-based inventory system, which makes the whole game playable with a joystick that I love. And, well, I love all rogue games, so Neil, I'm all in on this one. Um, it is currently still in development, so you can't go out and play it just yet, but they're shooting for a release by the end of the year, including a full physical release on cartridge through Bitmapsoft. So if you'd like to give the current version a go, just go visit BadgerPunches itch.io page through the link in the show notes. <laughs> Neil, last week's community question of the week was based on our discussion about the new 6502 FPGA chip. And uh, our, we asked our subreddit community, what retro chip would you like to see an FPGA made of? And uh, we got lots of responses. Um, our top voted response is by user FSCKIT. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Uh, we're going to go with that. Uh, And this user says, individual Amiga custom chips as drop-in replacements. Uh, I think that that is, of course, the end goal for many Amiga enthusiasts, as uh, it contains so many of those custom chips. Wouldn't you say, Neil? Yeah, and I think that applies across
0: uh, many, many computers. We're at the point where lots of people have reverse-engineered the main boards for these machines. But, of course, the custom chips, it's just very difficult to do that as a hobbyist at home. But um, FPGA opens up the ability to do that, so... Yeah, the the point will come, if it hasn't already, where we're running Amiga 500s with new system boards, new garries, new poolers, new busters, everything else uh, in there. Although perhaps not buster in an Amiga 500, but you know what I'm saying, all of these custom chips, mm-hmm. um, the day will come and um, it will become part and parcel of being a retro computer enthusiast because it will feel yeah. the same and it will allow us to continue enjoying those machines and sharing them with new people. So. Yeah, I'm on board with that.
1: User Gilmouse says, I think there is a need for the TED chip in the Commodore 264 series. These fail often and are really hard to replace reliably. The other day I was learning about the THED project, but no progress has been made so far. I am not really aware of the Commodore 264 series. Do you know anything about that, Neil? I don't know a great deal about that. No, but um, it sounds like it's just obscure enough to not have
0: enough attention turned to it for people to be recreating these custom chips. You know, I can say with some confidence that an Amiga 500 will have its custom chips put into FPGA long before the Commodore 264 because there can't be that many people using it. Um, Right. But the same applies, you know, across the range to help preserve these things. So let's get uh, was it called Ted? Was that the chip? Mm -hmm, Let's get Ted Ted made.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And finally, Matt, the piano man writes the Vic 20. or I'm sorry. Let's try this again. The Vic 2 chip for the C64 would be my choice. They are getting very hard to find at a reasonable price and they'll only get rarer. So the fact that these chips, these individual system chips, are being sold, you know, on the secondary market um, because the you know they're failing, they need they need to be uh, you know put in new systems, shows you that there is a market for these uh, these new FPGA solutions. And if you can get a board that will run you less than the price of a original you know replacement chip that will probably be more reliable, I think you've got a winner there on your hands. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I can fill you in a little bit now. The Commodore two six four series. Um, it's actually a series of machines that includes the C16, the C116, and the PLUS4. So they they use okay. that to cover that series of machines rather than just one. Um, machines designed to capture the low-end market from companies like Sinclair, the cheap TED chip allowed Jack Trammell to build multiple features into one chip, cutting production costs drastically. So probably quite a, a complex chip doing lots of different things while cutting costs
1: neil this week's community question of the week is what are your thoughts on windows xp so please post your responses in the subreddit and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week
0: today's episode of this week in retro comes thanks to our partners at anchor fm Whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be.
1: That's right, Neil. We love Anchor, and that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info.
0: They can be positive as well as negative messages. (laughs) This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple
1: Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers.
0: If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.